Again, Luke 7, 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, <clears throat> Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are blessed in splendid, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. My name is Brett Sweet. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF Central where we exist to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. We're here to reach Central Spokane, West Spokane, South Spokane, and I'm glad you're here with us. We're in this series through the Gospel of Luke, um, and I'm pleased to get to speak to you from God's Word. Let me pray once again. Father, we confess our great need. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. Jesus can give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And he can do that spiritually. So God, would you do that this morning by the power of your spirit? Help us to hear spiritual truth. Help us to see spiritual reality. Help us to rejoice in Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray, amen. You always thought you'd know when you met the one. You saw it on TV, you thought there'd be signs, there'd be fireworks, but now it's your 20th date. Would you say yes if he got down on one knee and proposed? Are you sure that he is the one? There were no fireworks or writing in the sky for you. You're just friends for so long. But your friends keep pointing out how well the two of you work well together, you go together. Could she be the one? You don't want to wait around for months or years. Enough of your life has gone by. But are you sure, are you certain that she is the one? Many of us have experienced those questions, felt those feelings on our journey towards marriage, and they in many ways mirror the reality that we face on a spiritual journey. Have we really met the one? We hear certain people say certain things. You can't trust the Bible. Don't trust it. Jesus is not the one. You know, If you follow Jesus, there's going to be tension in your family, in your friends, in your relationships. Are you sure Jesus is worth it? Are you sure Jesus is the one? You talk to the Jews in this world, in this life, in this age, and they say, Jesus can't be the one. Everything would be better. But you have this gnawing feeling that they're wrong. Is Jesus the one? This is the most important question you can ask, and this is the answer to stake your eternal destiny on. Jesus is the one. He's the one. John, Luke 7, 18-35 show us that John the Baptist is asking this question. He's asking it. You're not the first one. He's asking the same thing. And this was written to help us, to help us see decisively this fact. Jesus is the one. He's the one. He's the one you want as your friend. He's the one that thousands of years of history were pointing towards, where people said, could this be the one? No. Then Jesus comes. Is he the one? And the answer is yes. He's the one who brings God's kingdom. He's the one you need as your king. He has the power to create a new world. Jesus is the one. So as we look at Jesus being the one this morning, we're going to notice three things. And we're going to leave hopefully edified. John the Baptist is in prison. He is locked up. And he needs signs. So the first thing we're going to look at is signs that Jesus is the one. The signs that Jesus is the one. Then we're going to see that the truly great, the truly great people of the world point to the one. That's their job. That's how we define greatness. The great people, the truly great, point to the one. And then lastly, the reasons we or others reject that Jesus is the one. The reasons we reject the one. So first, signs that Jesus is the one. So John the Baptist, he's locked up in prison. That's not as important 
for Luke's purposes as it is the other gospel accounts, but he's made statements. He's challenged the political elite, particularly on sexual ethics, actually, um, which is touchy in our day and age. And for that reason, he's locked up in prison. He's in a prison cell. And we listen to John, and when we listen to him, and we, we start to realize that we think like John some of the time. And so we see here, as we think about signs that Jesus is the one, the first aspect is we, there's a need for us, our need for signs that Jesus is the one. We need to see signs. We want to know our need for signs that Jesus is the one. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, and those are all the miracles that Jesus is doing, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, that's Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We don't know exactly what's going on John the Baptist's minds, but we can picture him sitting on a hard uh, floor in a prison. Maybe he's got a piece of chalk. He's hearing the news about what Jesus is doing, and he's known Jesus since, his, since childhood. And he thought, I think Jesus is the one, but I'm not sure. If only there's a way for me to know. Jesus doesn't seem like the warrior Messiah I thought was going to come, that's going to level the Roman Empire, build up the Jewish people, sends these trusted servants of his disciples to go ask Jesus, is Jesus really the king? Is Jesus the one? Where are the flames and judgment? Why am I still locked in prison? What's going on here? Is Jesus the one? Now, some people, some scholars think, well, John's doubting here. John's starting to think, Jesus, you don't fit the mold. Others think, no, maybe John's actually starting to believe but he's not certain. Either way, we know that in John's mind, he is not certain yet that Jesus is the one. He wants to know. And he knows there's only two options. Jesus is the one who is to come, the Messiah, or somebody else's. It's not a half. It's not a maybe. Jesus is or isn't the one. Now, we don't have perfect faith, do we? We're like John the Baptist. We have doubts and uncertainty. We wish we had signs. And that's why we have this passage of Scripture to help us. So we, there's a need to see that signs that Jesus is the one. And now let's look at a list of signs that Jesus is the one. There's a list of signs that Jesus is the one. Look with me at verses 21 through 23. In that hour or could say, at that time, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, those disciples of John, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So there's John, again, sitting in prison. 
He's thinking, he's, he's read the Old Testament, he's heard about these things, he knows what uh, the Old Testament says in Isaiah about signs of Jesus, and maybe he's got a piece of chalk, and he's making a list. John's disciples come back to him, and they say, you have that list on the wall still, John? About maybe Jesus, maybe what, what it is that makes up a Messiah? Let me give you the list that we just saw in what Jesus told us to say to you. Do you want to see, now the Messiah, the one, he gives the blind back their sight, right? Check. He makes the deaf hear, right? Yes, check that one off. He makes the lame walk. Does that work? Yeah, cross that one out. Good. What about lepers? You know what? He heals them. Good. Cleanses them. Great. Check. How about raising the dead? Just did that up in Nain. Did you hear about that? The widow's son. He's alive. Miracles. All this list. John is going down the check marks. Check marks. Jesus is the one. And then, we don't get this without knowing Greek, but scholars point us out, the crescendo is not the miracles. It's not the miracles. It's the last one. It's preaching the good news. The way the whole Greek structure is saying, hey, good, good on those miracles, but the real sign that Jesus is the one is that the gospel is being preached, and not just to the rich, not just to the powerful, but to the poor. Jesus is the one. John hears the signs. He's got eyewitnesses pointing to the signs. We have a need for signs that Jesus is the one, and there's a list. But then verse 23 says this very interesting thing. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended has the Greek word scandal involved. You're not scandalized by Jesus. Could mean you're not tripped up or trapped by your sins when it comes to Jesus. See, John was tempted to be offended by Jesus. And maybe you are for the same reason. Jesus seems too gentle at times. He helped that centurion, that Roman occupier. He didn't overthrow him. Or maybe in our day and age, it's the opposite. Jesus comes as a little too harsh, a little too rigid. Either way, people are going to be offended by Jesus. If you're never offended by Jesus, you haven't met him. But if you meet Jesus and you follow Jesus... You're blessed. Do you need help to believe that Jesus is the one? Maybe you want some sort of sign. Here's a list of signs. John didn't get to see them. He took it on the word of others who saw it. So it's the same thing for us. We take it on the word of trustworthy men. That Jesus is the one. All these signs have been checked off. And the greatest sign of all, maybe you're waiting for a sign this morning, according to God himself, is that the good news of Jesus being king is being preached. So I'm your sign. And your neighbor who shares the gospel with you is your sign. This is who Jesus is. He's the one. Don't try to change him. 
He's the one. Don't be tripped up or trapped by sin. He's the one. Believe the signs. Jesus is the one. We've looked at the signs that Jesus is the one. Now let's note something else. The truly great, the great people point to the one. They point to the one. Truly great people point to the one. Would you know the difference between, between one who is truly great and one who isn't? Could you really tell? Sometimes it seems so cultural. In that culture or in that time period, it's really great to, to look like this or act like this. But in this culture, it's totally different. Jesus gives us something that transcends all cultures. Tells us what it's like to be truly great. But first, he's going to tell us what greatness is not. So let's look at what being great is not. What being great is not. Let's look down at verses I should have marked this. Um, verse 24, and we'll go down to verse, I'll stop, verse 25. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury, enter in king's courts. So if we go now back in time from when John, before John is in prison, height of his ministry, he's in the Jordan River, he's baptizing people, he's calling people to repentance, saying, come to me, repent of Jesus, the king, repent of sin, the kingdom of God is at hand, behold Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's doing all this, all these crowds are gathering, and people come, and why did they go? Maybe it was just for entertainment. So the truly great are not about entertaining people, though. They just went out to look at the scenery, reeds shaking in the wind. Or John, dressed funny, eating funny food. No? Entertainment, being the center of attention, that's not what makes someone great. What about having the finest fashion? Don't you wish you'd really... You'd really feel like you belong if you could own that piece of clothing. Jesus says, no. That's not what makes you really great, having fine, comfortable, soft clothing. What about being famous, living a life of luxury, being able to influence the powerful, like living in king's courts? No. That's not what the truly great do. Not necessarily. Just because you can influence them doesn't mean make you great. We're tempted to think that way sometimes, though, aren't we? If I could just be comfortable, a little nicer house, a little nicer car, if I could just be entertained, this has been a long day. If I can just get home, get on the couch, turn on that favorite show, that would be the good life. That would be great. Or if I could just get to all the right cultural events where all the cultural elite are, Go to the movies or the plays or the shows or the concerts. Or maybe, you know, it's creation. I want to see all the national parks. I want to go to all the beaches. Then I'll be great. If I can just be one of the popular people, have people's attention, maybe nobody else's attention except for his or hers or that professor or that parent. Jesus is the one, and he's helping us here. He's helping us show you that that's not how you'll be great. You'll be great a different way. 
He just showed us what being great is not, but now he's going to continue telling us that what being what great, being great is pointing to the one. What being great is, what being great is. So verses 26 through 28, we'll listen to Jesus as he speaks to us, tells us what it means to be great. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Being truly great is pointing to the one. Jesus seems to say that John is the greatest man who has ever been born. The greatest one who's ever been born. He's a prophet and more. He's a prophet and more. True greatness now is suffering in a prison cell. The truly great is not living the easy life. He's in prison. And he breaks down John's greatness really to two aspects. There's a great location and a great function. And I'll point out what those are. But first thing about this. At weddings, I was at one yesterday, a lot of risk is taken by including little girls in the ceremony. A lot of risk. Seen it go south a few times. This is an act of faith. Little girls do not usually provide the best advice before the wedding. They're not usually counseling the bride, telling her to be calm. They're not doing that. They're not uh, telling her to think about different strategies uh, for, for how to get through the ceremony. But little girls in wedding ceremonies are great because of their location. Everyone knows there went the groom and bride's parents, there went the, the uh, groomsmen and bridesmaids, and now here come these little girls throwing out petals. And everybody goes, oh, we're getting ready. We're excited because they come right before the bride. The same thing is happening here. They come in just the right location in time. They've prepared the way. The same thing is happening here. John the Baptist is great because of his location and time. He's the last one. When John the Baptist walks through the door, the sign is, everybody knows the next one to come is the one. And the next one to come is Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. And yet, Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. How can that be? So here's where the function of greatness is revealed. The truly great point to the one. See, those in the kingdom of God have the Holy Spirit. They know more about who Jesus is, what he does as king, so they can more accurately point out of what the Messiah is like, who he's like. As king, Jesus is king. He's the one. And when he came, God's kingdom is breaking into the world, changing people. So people who are part of that kingdom are truly great 
because they submit to the one, the one who is king. So this changes how we think about greatness, doesn't it? So many of us are trying to prove our greatness. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Mom, don't you see? Are you paying attention? Professor, look how good I wrote this paper. Give me the grade. Tell everyone I'm, I'm great. Children, why don't you obey me? I'm great. Pay attention to me. That's not what the truly great do. The truly great don't point to themselves, they point to the one. That's how you're truly great. This church has grown, look how great we are. No, that doesn't make a church great. Church is great when it points to the one. And so I want you to think about the people you think are great. The main point of life, the main way to being great is to point to the one. How great are your heroes if they've missed the whole point? Sure, they won battles. Glorious. They've missed the point, though. Sure, they've written great books. Wonderful. But they didn't point to the one. Sure, you are successful. You know better than everybody else. Truly. But do you point to the one? Do the pastors point you to the one? Does whoever fill in the blank point to the one? Jesus is the one. What made John the Baptist great is that he pointed to the one. What makes people in God's kingdom even greater is they can point to the one with even more clarity. Jesus is the one. But we want to know When we want to know if Jesus is the one, he gives us signs that he's the one. Do you believe them this morning? He's shown us that the truly great point to the one. Is that you? Do you point to the one? And now last, we need to examine the reasons we reject the one. What are the reasons we reject the one? There's any number of reasons people can reject Jesus as the one. We're going to look at two of them. Probably the two greatest are right here. The first reason we reject the one, reason number one is this, we don't acknowledge our sin. We don't acknowledge our sin. We just think it doesn't matter or we're not really sinners. Look at verses 29 through 30. When all the people heard this, that's the message of John the Baptist, And the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So remember, John the Baptist, who's he baptizing? People repenting. Why do they come for repentance? Because they know they're sinners. Who's not coming to be baptized? Pharisees and lawyers. Why wouldn't they? Because they don't feel a need. They don't feel a need. They don't acknowledge their sin. And what's terrible is if we don't acknowledge our sin, we will reject Jesus as the one. We won't know that sin has impacted our reasoning and thinking capacity, making us spiritually blind and deaf. We won't know that. We won't see a need for a savior. 
if we don't acknowledge our sin, we won't want to submit to a king. The reasons we reject the one include the fact that we don't acknowledge our sin. Now, lastly, reason number two, we sinfully reject the one because we sinfully refuse to be satisfied. We sinfully refuse to be satisfied. We won't be satisfied. We refuse it. People try and it doesn't work. Now, there's some disagreement about some of the details, who, who is what Jesus referencing, but I'll give you my thoughts and I'll get you the widely agreed upon main point here. Let's read verses 31 through 35. Jesus speaking, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. People sinfully refuse to be satisfied. Here comes John the Baptist. He lives this ascetic lifestyle, denies himself, wears uncomfortable clothing, eats uh, just rustic food, grasshoppers and honey. And people say, this guy is crazy. He's saying that our comforts are no good. We need to deny ourselves at times. This guy's crazy. We're not going to follow him. He's too separate from us. Then Jesus comes. And Jesus goes and eats and drinks, changes water into wine at feasts, eats with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, Jesus? Jesus, no. Like, you're too worldly. You're not separate enough. You should be fasting like we are. Well, what is it? What do you want? What are you looking for? Not enough fun, John. Too much fun, Jesus. In our sin, we refuse to be satisfied. We insist on making up our own rules and compelling others to fit them. You need to fit my box. When Jesus doesn't measure up to our standards, we refuse to be satisfied. We wonder why Jesus is not the one to us. It's because we reject him. Now, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, it's because ultimately you reject Jesus as the one. Maybe you don't know why. Maybe you're at different places in your life. You're trying to figure out maybe Jesus is the one. But I do want to ask, what would satisfy you? Would it be signs? He's given them. Fulfilled prophecy? He's given you that. If Jesus is the one, then he makes the rules and not you. And this is hard for us, hard for me. And so the question comes, what will satisfy you? And do you apply that level of satisfaction to your life as it is now? Some of us refuse to be satisfied. We like being skeptics. But are you satisfied with your skepticism? Or should you question whether you should be or not? Are you missing out on the joy and feasting and life and meaning that come with knowing Jesus is the one? 
the Son of Man. Maybe you are. Little kids say, if you're around them much, this phrase, I'm bored. Then you say, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, Can we turn on your favorite movie? No, I just watched it yesterday. Well, let's read a book. No, I don't want to right now. Well, we just got you these toys for your birthday. Do you want to play with them? No, I'm, I'm tired of that. Oh, we got you this video game. I beat it last week. When you hear children speaking that way, do you think others look at them and say, now they've figured it out. They've got life figured out. They know what life is about. I want to be like them. Refusing to be satisfied? And yet that attitude exists in our heart, doesn't it? We feel that. I'm bored. Jesus offers an eternal feast. He offers a life of meaning. He offers joy inexpressible and full of glory. He can do that because he is the one. He's fully God and fully man. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only go-between. He is the one. There's not two. There's not three. There's one. Not one of many. Not a good option. He's the one. He lived sinlessly for you. Where you rejected Jesus. We've all rejected Jesus at times in our lives. Sinfully. So what do we deserve? To be rejected, abandoned. And Jesus went to the cross joyfully as our substitute. God the Father rejected Jesus. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why have you rejected me? Poured out this wrath on me. Well, they had agreed to do that in eternity past. Rejected so that you would not be rejected. He took your place as a substitute. That's good news this morning. You refused to be satisfied, but Jesus satisfied God, the one the least likely to satisfy. And that brings approval of you when you put your faith in Jesus. That's good news. But you have to acknowledge your sin. You have to acknowledge it needs to be atoned for. That's good news. Jesus gives you the signs to believe. And then there is power. He was raised from the dead three days later. Power to believe. We can't do this on our own. The Holy Spirit has to empower us to believe, empower us to defeat death the way he did, empowering us to be truly great, Not by pointing to ourselves, but by pointing to Him. Jesus is the one. In that last verse, verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus is saying really this. It's another way of saying, you see how foolish it looks to refuse to be satisfied. So the truly wise follow me. Truly wise trust in me. Truly wise aren't offended by me. They're not tripped up or trapped by their sin. Give up on trusting in yourself. Give up on it. Give up on any flimsy reasons for rejecting the one. If you're really walking through it, we want to walk 
with you through it. It's okay to have questions and try to seek, them, seek the answers. But do it sincerely. Now, if Jesus is the one, this has massive implications for Christians. I dare say they're contained in our mission statement. It's not to say other churches aren't pointing to Jesus as the one, but I'm saying this is a practical way. If Jesus is the one, then everything must be for God's glory. Everything. We can't point to ourselves. Can't be obsessed with ourselves as a church. He must be the great hero. All must be done for his glory. And if Jesus is the one, then we must worship him. Hear preaching about him that hopefully stirs us up. Sing songs to him that talk about who he is and what he's done for us. If he's the one, then worship is all of life. That means when our marriages are troubled, when our parenting is challenging, when our jobs are discouraging, Jesus is the one that can satisfy us when everything else disappoints. It's not about us. It's not about our failures. Jesus is the one. He's, he loves us and is in control of our lives. If Jesus is the one, then evangelism must play a part. The truly great point to the one. The truly great will want to share the gospel with everyone and will share the gospel with some. They can't help it, and they'll be truly great. And God will empower us to do that. If Jesus is the one, then community will be around Jesus. It won't be around a political party, as important as politics can be. It won't be around hobbies, as, as great a blessing as hobbies can be. It won't be around people of similar stages in life, as great as it is to have people that we can relate to. It won't be that way. It'll be around the one. We'll find we have an affection for people in the kingdom of God that we're not even sure why. We recognize because they know the one. And we'll challenge one another to be satisfied, not with other things, but with the one, Jesus. We'll remind her again and again and again, there's good reason to believe that Jesus is the one. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but yesterday I was coming back from a wedding, and it was kind of like a mini college reunion. And it's probably, I think we counted about 20 people there, and most of them I knew in college. And most of them are walking with Christ. In fact, almost all of them that I'm aware of that were at the wedding. But as I was walking away, driving away really, from the Tri-Cities, I felt kind of lost. I felt kind of sad. All these friends of mine scattered across the state, some of them across the nation, some of them going around the world. And there's this mourning, this aching, this sadness. I wanted them close to me. didn't want to lose them again. And then as I was driving, I thought, they're not the one. I don't need to have them with me. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. I don't need them anymore. He's got their own purposes. We'll have heaven together. Jesus is the one. It's the same for you guys. Some of you will suffer. Some of you will go through terrible pain. But if you have the one, you will make it. You'll be satisfied. Let's pray. You found the one. Father, we're thankful that you have sent Jesus.
We're thankful that you've given us signs that he's the one. We pray we would believe. Pray we would live lives transformed by the fact that Jesus is the one. We don't need to look to another. We pray that you, we wouldn't be offended by him. And God, we confess this is all powerless. We're all powerless to do this, so we need you to go to work. Send your Holy Spirit whose job is to point us to the one and empower us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.